Open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 7, verse 18. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the man had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowd concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in kings' courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, and I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. And you say, he has a demon. The son of man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Would you pray with me? Well, God, we want to thank you and praise you this morning afresh for the beautiful gift of your transforming grace. Lord God, thank you that by your grace, you have taken us people who were once enslaved to our own sinful desires and you have freed us You have taken your law and you have written it on our hearts that we might desire to know you and love you. Lord God, as we open your word this morning, your word, your precious word, we pray for us as a people sitting in our homes during this lockdown. And we pray, transform us 
afresh as you speak. Open our eyes to behold beautiful, wondrous, amazing things about our Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, I want to begin with a question for us as a church this morning, and that is this. If I were to ask you, what is Jesus like? What would you say? You know, if I was to ask many people in our neighborhood and in our city, I'm likely to get many, many different answers. Here's one response uh, by the famous New Age spiritualist and author Deepak Chopra. Uh, Chopra says the following. He says, I want to offer the possibility that Jesus was truly, as he proclaimed, a savior. Not the savior, not the one and only son of God. Rather, Jesus embodied the highest level of enlightenment. He spent his brief adult life describing it, teaching it and passing it on to future generations. Jesus intended to save the world by showing others the path to God consciousness. You know, according to Chopra, uh, Jesus was a great teacher who saves us simply by helping people to become more aware of God, becoming more God conscious, the path to God consciousness. You know, as I said earlier, if you were to ask a range of different people in our neighborhood, who is Jesus? You're likely to get a whole variety of different answers. Jesus is a prophet. Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is our God. Jesus is a great moral teacher. Many, many different answers. But it's possible to be blinded by our cultural assumptions about what God is like. And like Chopra, to reinvent, who reinvents Jesus through the lens of new age spirituality, to reinvent Jesus as well. You know, we live in an individualistic culture, a culture that is self-focused. It's all about us in our culture, our wants, our desires, our rights. And so for many of us, we reinvent Jesus and we reinvent God as being a God who exists to be us focused as well. You know, if God exists, he must be all about giving us what we want. He must be kind of like a giant Santa in a sky, in the sky, or like the kind of divine NRMA roadside assistance or something like that. We as a culture, we focus on the subjective. We focus on our desires. And so we just can tend to assume that God must be just pro everything that we personally enjoy. Uh, for us in our culture, our identity, who we are as people is all about following what you feel. Our culture loves tolerance and, and, and values loving others. And so we, we begin to think, well, God just must embrace Absolutely everyone. We're a pluralistic culture where there's many different ways and, and we value God being one who must be like our culture again, who must be one of many ways. All of these different ways and paths and religions must all be equal. And therefore, Jesus must therefore be all loving. He must be never judging. He must be a great moral teacher and he must be one of many, many different paths to knowing God. But this is just 21st century projection of our culture upon Jesus. 
Now, the truth is that there's a temptation in every age and for every culture to be blinded by their cultural assumptions of what Jesus is like. You know, despite the many Old Testament prophecies about the coming of Jesus, the truth is that in Jesus' day, no one, not even the religious experts of the day, predicted what the Messiah was going to be like. And so Jesus shocked them. And for many of them, Jesus deeply offended them. Now, our passage today gives us deep insight into the struggle everyday people had to accept Jesus. And therefore, it challenges us to trust Jesus on his own terms. You know, if you're making uh, notes this morning, I've entitled this message, The Unexpected King. And I've got three points uh, the first is where we're going to be spending the majority of our time. So don't freak out, you know, if, if we're getting late and we're just on point one and think, you know, I'm going to be here all day. No, we're, we're going to get through it all. Point number one, the king, John, did not expect. Point number two, the king of unparalleled greatness. And point number three, the king most reject. Three different points for us this morning in this message, and yet one hope for us that comes from our passage, and that is that our passage encourages us to put aside our own ideas and place our trust in Jesus, the unexpected King. This passage is all about a call of faith, friends. It's calling us to put our trust in Jesus. So let's dive right on in with point number one this morning. Point number one, the King John did not expect. You know, just by way of context, for those that may be joining our series for the first time, Jesus, having finished his sermon on the plain, is traveling around his home region of Galilee, teaching and performing great miracles. And the whole of our chapter, this chapter seven, is focused on Jesus with the, the key question for the whole chapter coming in verse 49, which says, who is this that even forgives sin? The whole chapter is focused on this question of who is this Jesus? What is he all about? And Jesus' fame is spreading far and wide. Um, in verse 17, we learn that it's spread throughout Judea and the countryside as well. And word has made its way back to John the Baptist, who is currently in prison, having been thrown in there by Herod Antipas for speaking out against his marriage to his brother's wife. Uh, Josephus, the famous Jewish historian, says of John the Baptist that he was being held in the fortress Machaerus near the Dead Sea, which was about 160 kilometers away from Galilee, or about a five to six day journey. We read the following uh, on in our passage from verse 18, if you read with me. It says the following. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? John is in prison, far, far away, and he hears about all the things that Jesus has been doing. He, he likely heard about the multiple healings, the amazing teaching, and he says, sends two of his disciples to Jesus to ask him a very important question. It's so important that they're likely making a five or six day journey just to be able to ask it of him. And the question I want to ask him is this. Are you really the Messiah? Or should we be 
eagerly waiting for somebody else. But hang on a second, wait, wait, wait. Didn't John already declare that Jesus was the Messiah? You know, back in John's gospel, in John chapter 1, verse 25, we we read the following. It says they asked him, that's John the Baptist, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. You know, John has already said this of Jesus. And if John here declares so clearly that Jesus is the Son of God, the promised Messiah, Why does he now send his disciples to Jesus to ask if he really is the Messiah or if they should be waiting for someone else? The answer? John was beginning to have his doubts. He was beginning to question if he was wrong about Jesus. Maybe I've misunderstood. Maybe it's somebody else. What was making John question about whether Jesus was really the Messiah? What could possibly have led John to, at this point, begin to waver? We're not told, but a close examination of our passage reveals a couple of very likely possibilities. The first possibility is simply the cultural expectations of the people in John's day. And that was that the Messiah would be a great military leader. You know, the wider Jewish belief was that the Messiah would come and bring with him the physical kingdom of God. That he would launch a great military campaign and inflict many losses on Rome and defeat them. That he would reestablish an eternal kingdom in Jerusalem where God's people would live forever in harmony. Now imagine from John's perspective, John is about 160 kilometers away, languishing in prison, facing execution. And so far in his ministry, Jesus didn't seem to be launching a single military campaign or any attempt to rescue him. And so John begins to question, maybe this isn't the Messiah. And sends an envoy to seek confirmation. But a second likely possibility we receive from our passage by examining it carefully 
is that Jesus's ministry style was not what he had expected either. You know, John had been preaching that the Messiah would come to bring judgment and to sort between the repentant and the unrepentant. And so we read in Luke chapter 3, verse 16, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Listen to this. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now, we know that this prophecy is true of Jesus, but that's not how things would have likely appeared to John. You know, Jesus seemed to be going around and healing people. It's not the ministry style that John had expected. And so we read the following in verses 21 and 22. It says, In that hour, he, that's Jesus, healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now Jesus, who was in the process of performing many miracles, tells the disciples to report back to John what they see and hear him doing. But it's actually more than just a list of the things that he's done. Now Jesus in this moment is alluding to a couple of different parts of Isaiah that speak about the coming of God himself to save his people. Let me read you some of the sections Jesus is quoting here uh, for us to get a feel for what he means. Isaiah 35 verse 3 says the following. Strengthen the weak hands, the prophet says, and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance and the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water in the haunt of jackals where they lie down. The grass shall become reeds and rushes and a highway shall be there and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. You know, at a great time of judgment upon God's people, there's this picture of the coming of God himself to rescue his people. 
You know, we can have this idea about the message of the gospel that it's just simply what Jesus did on the cross in order to simply save people from God's judgment. And that is true. But there is so, so much more to it than that. You know, the Bible teaches us that Jesus at the cross was, in fact, reconciling the whole of the creation of God to himself. You know, the Bible teaches that that the creation, the world and everything that exists in this universe was cursed by God in response to our rebellion to him. And the promise of Scripture is that one day God will dwell with man again on earth and the earth will be restored. And Isaiah describes God's coming as people are being healed from infirmities. As the landscape itself completely is changed and as a desert is transformed into a beautiful oasis. And a highway is built for God's people to return to the place in which God dwells, Mount Zion. A highway of holiness where God's people are returned to live for him and will travel along to the place where God dwells with singing and rejoicing. Here's the message, church. Jesus is saying to John, that time of complete restoration starts now with me. My healings are the beginning, the breaking in of a new era where the world will be completely restored and where people will once again walk with God. And Jesus then ends with his climactic point from Isaiah 61 verse 1. At the end of verse 22 of our passage, quoting Isaiah 61:1, which says, The Spirit of God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. You see, in this verse that Jesus used to launch his ministry in chapter 4, he means by the poor, those in a wretched condition, those in particular who can see their spiritual poverty, that they so desperately need God. And so Jesus' message to John is, I am the Messiah, John, who is bringing the new kingdom of God, who's bringing the new world foretold by Isaiah the prophet. That's what my miracles point to. But it's not in the way that you expected. And so Jesus says in verse 23, the following. And blessed is the one who is not offended. By me. And Jesus takes it a step further and he challenges John. Blessed are those who are not offended by me. Blessed are those who are not caused to stumble by me. Blessed are those who are not brought down by me. You see, according to Jesus, every person that comes to truly see him faces a temptation. To be offended by him. But if you would be blessed, if you would receive divine favor, you must not stumble. You must not take offense. You must not refuse to believe. You know, of this passage, John Calvin puts it so helpfully. He says the following By this concluding statement, Christ intended to remind them. That he who would adhere firmly and steadfastly to the faith of the gospel must encounter offenses, which will tend to interrupt the progress of faith. 
This is said by way of anticipation to fortify us against offenses. The first lesson, therefore, to be learned is that we must contend with with offenses if we would continue in the faith of Christ. For Christ himself is justly denominated a rock of offense and a stone of stumbling by which many fall. The Lord Jesus intends to remind us that if you will firmly hold on to your faith, you will counter many offenses. Follow Jesus long enough and at some point you will discover some truth or the Lord will act in some way that you did not expect and the temptation you will face is to be offended. Just as the Lord did not act in a way that even John the Baptist himself expected. And it caused him to waver. It caused him to stumble. It caused him to question whether he had a mistake. So too for us. You see, John the Baptist himself was caused to waver by Christ, was caused to or tempted to take offense. It surely is no different for us living in 2021. That we might not be disappointed about a lack of fire and brimstone from Jesus or that he hadn't started a, a military campaign. Offenses that we face are merely different. Here is a selection of possible contenders that I thought of this week as I've been reflecting on this passage. Offended that he alone is God and not the gods of other religions. You know, maybe you have a close friend who is a deeply committed Hindu and is such a good person that you care so deeply about and deeply love. And then you read a passage like John 14, verse 6, where Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And you begin to ask the question, how can that be fair? Source of temptation to take offense number two. The truth that he owns us completely and calls us to submit all of our life to his wishes. You know, you might feel thankful for the grace of the Lord Jesus at the cross that saves us from judgment. But begin to believe that it kind of just allows us to get on with life and live however we please. And then you read a passage like John chapter 14, verse 23, where Jesus says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And you begin to think to yourself, well, what does keeping his word have to do with love? Temptation number three that we might begin to feel tempted to stumble upon Jesus or take offense is the truth that he uses trials and difficulties to refine us and display his glory. You might be going through a really difficult time with parenting or work or health and you feel like God has abandoned you. And yet the Lord Jesus says in John 16, I have said these things to you that in me you have peace. 
In the world, you will have tribulation. You will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. You know, when Jesus appears to us in ways in which we did not expect, we're tempted to stumble, just like John the Baptist. But the Lord sought to strengthen him, pointing him to Isaiah, pointing him to what he had planned to achieve. And that, my friends, is point number one. The king that not just John, but we did not expect. Not just point number one, the king John didn't expect. Point number two, the king of unparalleled greatness. Why don't you read on with me in verse 24. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. No, Jesus, having sent the envoy from John the Baptist back to him, turns to teach the crowd. And three times he asked them the same question. Why did you go into the desert to see John? Because he's like a reed shaking in the breeze. That is because he's a soft, a kind of weak and shaky kind of individual. Well, clearly not. I mean, he's in prison for giving it to Herod about his brother's wife. Jesus asks, Because he wears soft and fancy clothing? That is, because he's a wealthy and self-indulgent kind of person? Well, clearly not. The the guy lives in the desert and he wears camel, camel hair as his clothing and he just eats locusts, insects and honey. Clearly not. You went out to see a prophet, says Jesus, because you wanted to hear from God. That's why he went out into the wilderness, is Jesus' point. But this is more than just any prophet, says Jesus. This is, or John is, the prophet foretold in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. The prophet who will come before the face of God himself and prepare his way. Before my face, John was the prophet who literally would stand before the divine son and point to him and say, There he is. And so we read the following in verse 28. Jesus says, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Now just let that verse sit with you for a little while. There's no one born of women women greater than John But the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. What Jesus is saying here is startling. Of those born of women, none is greater in context as a prophet than John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the greatest of all the prophets in the Old Testament. He is the greatest prophet that the world has seen today. This is a huge, huge statement. But what Jesus says next is even greater. 
But the least, the least in the kingdom of God is greater in context as a prophet than John the Baptist. And just imagine with me for a moment. I want you to imagine for a moment the worst Christian in the history of the world. I mean, like logically, that person has to exist, right? You know, everyone has to be ranked in some way. Technically, someone out there has to be the worst possible Christian, the most immature Christian, the least faithful Christian, the grumpiest, most sinful, hanging on by a thread Christian that the world has ever seen. What Jesus is saying in this moment is that that Christian is greater than the greatest prophet in the entire Old Testament, John the Baptist. How on earth is that possible? How could they be a greater prophet than John the Baptist? Well, the answer, because they have a greater message. You know, John the Baptist's message was, get ready for the one who's coming. He's far greater than me. He will come with judgment, repent to prepare for his coming. No other Old Testament prophet had a message so great as John the Baptist. Everybody else always saw the Messiah from a distance, Jesus from a distance. But John stands before his face and says, here he is. But even the weakest, even the lousiest, even the least faithful Christian in the history of world is a greater prophet than John the Baptist because they carry a greater message than John the Baptist. They carry the message of the king who would come to die on the cross for our sins. A message John the Baptist had no idea about. A message of the perfect life of obedience of Jesus on our behalf. How Jesus would live the life that we never lived. How he would consume the wrath of God in full on the cross. How he rose in victory over death and is ascended at the right hand of God. How he has sent the Holy Spirit to regenerate and fill the hearts and minds of those that God has set his heart on. That those who trust in the Lord Jesus are permanently joined to him and filled with his Holy Spirit. That those who trust in Christ become new spiritual creations with the word written on their hearts. You know, what an amazing privilege that we could be listed as being greater prophets than John the Baptist and being entrusted with a greater message than he ever had. But of course, this truth mainly speaks, in fact, not of the greatness of us, but the greatness of our unexpected king. You know, our message is greater because we know so much more about this king. And we know so much more about the coming kingdom of God, which is so much greater than any previous kingdom because of the king who rules over it. You see, the truth is that the greatness of John the Baptist actually demonstrates the greatness of the king that he came to prepare the way for. And the truth for us this morning, church, is that one of the greatest causes of offense a person can face in our culture, one of the greatest stumbling blocks a person can face is failing to recognize the greatness of Jesus. You know, in Luke 9, 23, uh, Jesus said, 
to all that were around, he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Now, culture says to live the good life, you must be true to yourself. You must follow your dreams. You must do what feels right. You do you and never let the naysayers stop you. Press on until you're free. That's what our culture says. But Jesus says do the opposite. Jesus says deny yourself. Jesus says die to your natural sense of what is right. Follow my path of suffering and find life and freedom in me. And you know what the natural response of our culture is to that? What gives you the right? And who do you think you are to tell me how I should live my life? Well, the answer is, he's the maker of all things. He's the one who owns us, who knows us and who loves us like no other. He's the one who's supremely good and to whom we owe our everything. And he has every right to call us to self-denial. But if you can't see that, the fruit will be that you will be offended and you will stumble. Here's a question, a difficult question I want us to consider this morning as we reflect on the greatness of Jesus. Is there something this morning that you're holding on to that you know you shouldn't be? You know, maybe it's a relationship you know you shouldn't be in. Maybe it's money you know you should be giving. Maybe it's a possession you really, really want. Maybe it's an offense you're refusing to let go of. Maybe it's a career you know you shouldn't be pursuing. You know, on this, especially on this special Father's Day, you know, I just want to draw, uh, draw attention to the dads just for a moment. As dads that are following Christ, we know Christ has called us to be the spiritual leaders of our home. You know, Christ has called us to give ourselves to instructing our children in the way of Christ, to washing our wives with the word. And yet it can be easy to compromise. It can be easy to tell ourselves, well, just for a season, you know, I'm going to focus on my career. I'm going to focus on getting the house renovated or buying a house, or I'm just going to focus on getting these projects done, or I'm just going to just wait till they're a bit older, and then I'll give myself to what God is calling me to do. You know, I read uh, this week on Twitter, uh, someone put the following, and I thought it's really good. They said, adulthood is saying, but after this week, things will slow down a bit over and over and over until you die. Isn't that true? You know, it's not just the right that, that Jesus has the right to ask us to let go of these things. But because he's so great, it's worth it a thousand times over. And that's our second point. The king of unparalleled greatness. Well, not just point number one, the king John didn't expect. Not just point number two, the king of unparalleled greatness. But finally, point number three the king most reject. Read with me verse 29. 
It says, when all the people heard this and the tax collectors too, they declared God just having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you didn't weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. And you say he has a demon. The son of man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her children. And after Jesus had finished speaking about John the Baptist and the greatness of the kingdom, those that had repented at the preaching of God or at the preaching of John, they praised God and they gave thanks to God. But the Pharisees and the religious experts who had refused to answer John's call to repent, it says, rejected God's purpose for them. They rejected what Jesus had to say. And Jesus goes on to tell a parable. But notice who he directs it towards. It's not with a view to the religious elite only. Read with me again, verse 31. It says the following. It says, To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? This parable is actually directed towards the people of Jesus' generation, the majority of people. And we could call this parable the parable of the brats. Just imagine, Jesus says, children are playing in the marketplace and calling out to each other. You didn't dance when we played the music and we're not playing. You didn't cry when we sang our sad song. And so we're not playing. Jesus is saying this generation is like brats who simply want God to play by their rules. John the Baptist came all austere, preaching judgment with no partying, being really a serious guy out in the wilderness. And you rejected him. I've come celebrating with people and you've rejected me. You see, God had tried multiple different ways to reach out to you and you've rejected them all. Now, Jesus's point is that in his day, the majority of people had incredibly hard hearts towards him. They want him to play by their rules. And if he doesn't, they're going to reject him. It's probably easy enough at this point to see that not much has changed in 2,000 years. We live in a culture that demands God to play by our rules when it comes to the teaching of Jesus. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's great. But don't give me any of that self-denial business. When Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary. That's amazing. That's great. But you can't be serious about your call, your brother full, and you're in danger of hell business or No one comes to the Father except through me. Surely not, Jesus. You can't be real about that. You know, if you're listening to this message today and you know Christ, you are an anomaly in history. God in his grace has rescued you and he's softened your heart towards him. You see, our natural disposition is to have hearts that are incredibly hard towards God and to reject him. We simply want him to play by our rules, to act in a way we think is right. And to affirm our sense of what is good. Put another way, actually, we'd just rather be God ourselves. But logically, why should we expect God to agree with our Western post-enlightenment values? Why shouldn't we expect God to have Eastern values or 
Asian values? Shouldn't we expect a true God to be different from every culture at points? If God was always Western, wouldn't we expect him to be a creation of Western imagination? If God is far above us, shouldn't he actually at different times offend us deeply because he's not like us? You see, with our hardened hearts, ours is the king that most reject. Well, I just want to close our time together with a brief word of application. How should we respond to this passage this morning? Well, firstly, I just want to address those that are listening this morning that don't know Christ. And you wouldn't describe yourself Maybe yet, at this point in time, maybe God's got you on a journey as a follower of the Lord Jesus. And the challenge I want to give you this morning is to lean into the areas of disagreement you have and to reevaluate the areas that you might have of concern or offense with Jesus and his teaching. Here's a question for you to consider if that's you. Is it possible that just like John the Baptist Jesus is different from what you imagine. Is it possible that maybe the Jesus that at this moment you're rejecting or finding it difficult with is different from what you think or thought he should be? You know, just as David said this morning, uh, we've got an Alpha course coming up on Monday week and we would absolutely love to have you come and join us for that. Uh, It's just an extended time to get to know Jesus and to in an environment where people are just like you Ask all the questions that you might have without feeling that they're silly. Uh, Questions are never silly. We love nothing more than helping people on their journey with Jesus. And we'd love to invite you along to join us on that course. Lastly, I just want a word of application to those amongst us this morning, majority of us that do know Christ as their king. And here's the question that I I want you to just consider this morning as I prayerfully considered how best to address us and to end our time together this morning question for you to consider is this. Are you beginning to harbour offence against our Lord Jesus? You know, it could be that you're walking through at the moment a prolonged illness that doesn't seem to have an expiry date. It could be that you're in a difficult marriage and feeling that depth of disappointment. It could be because you're struggling at the moment in a lockdown with loneliness and isolation. It could be that you're suffering from a broken relationship with maybe a colleague or a close friend or even a child. It could be a difficult work situation that you're facing at the moment. And the result is that you find yourself beginning to question the heart of Christ for you. And you wonder, is he really the king after all? And you wonder, is he the king that I even want? Well, I want to remind us of the words of John Calvin that uh, we shared earlier today. Uh, Calvin says this, He who would adhere firmly and steadfastly to the faith of the gospel must encounter offences which will tend to interrupt the progress of faith. You know, encountering offences when it comes to following Jesus is just part of our journey. And I just want to encourage you, take those offences today. And lay them at his feet. He is so good. He is so gracious. You will find mercy in your time of need. Friends, it's easy to take our experiences, our culture and preconceived ideas and project them upon Jesus. 
And when he acts differently to find ourselves offended, would we put those all aside and place our trust in Jesus, the unexpected King? Would you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you and praise you for the wonderful wisdom contained within your words. And we take encouragement this morning as we see in this passage that even John the Baptist struggled to come to terms with who you are because you are a king far greater than anything we could possibly imagine. And Lord God, as your people today, as we have spent time at the feet of Jesus examining, we pray and ask, strengthen our faith, increase our trust in you. Help us to know that even when in circumstances we can't understand what is happening, we can trust your heart, knowing that you're always good, knowing that you're far greater than anybody ever expected knowing that in all things you are with us, fulfilling your purposes until you call us home. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.